This is the Improved Photography Podcast, episode 182. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code IMPROVE to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. Hey guys, welcome back to the Improved Photography Podcast. This is where we're all going to nerd out for about an hour, and this is a nice safe place because nobody's going to judge you for being a nerd. And to help me be a nerd this week, we have Larissa. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. And we have Sandy. Hey. Uh, So... This week, we're going to uh, cover some questions that we had come in, and then we're going to do some five-minute spiels. But uh, the first question that we have this week is from Stanley Harper. He says, having a backup plan when your initial photography session plans get trashed due to weather and unforeseen events. Uh, What do you guys do when you have uh, things fall through? You have a shoot planned, the weather falls falls apart on you. Sandy, what do you do in those situations? I realize what's inside of my control and what's outside of my control because it used to really bother me when things would happen and I'd feel like it looked ne- like negative on my part, like I mm-hmm. could have controlled something. Um, you know, if it's raining, you just get trash bags and, you know, see if they're up for it and try to make fun of it. If they can't, you know, if they play, can't play ball and if they're not going to be a good sport, there's really nothing that you can do about it and I wouldn't beat yourself up too much. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, most clients are going to and we're kind of assuming we're talking about portrait clients. Most clients understand that if the weather is that bad, they're not going to get good photos anyway. So they're not going to really pressure you to go out in a rainstorm and shoot. And uh, one of the things that Erica talked about is that she has a friend that every time she books a session, she automatically books for two dates. And the, the, (laughs) the first date is, you know, plan A and the second date is plan B. And that doesn't always work. Um, Some things are time sensitive and you just have to get it done. And in those situations, I always have, uh, if it's an outdoor shoot, I have an outdoor location in mind. And then I have the plan B indoor location, like, you know, worst case scenario. And sometimes that'll work okay. Most times it doesn't (laughs) because, you know, typically if you're shooting outside, you're shooting outside for a reason. Uh, because that's the kind of look that you're going for. Uh, but the best you can do is, um, if it's time sensitive, have an indoor location available to you. And if it's not a time sensitive thing, uh, have a secondary date set up. Um, the, the worst time is when, you know, the senior photos are due next week and it, you were up against the clock anyways. And then the weather turns to crap that mm-hmm. that's the worst. And I have that happen every single year, at least to a couple clients. Well, the thing that I'm reading that I'm kept picking up on the most is when they've traveled a long way to get there. Yeah. If there isn't a chance for you to redo the session in that case. Um, and I'm guessing we're talking about rain or something, you know, then what, what would you do yourself if, well, uh, ideally, I would have some kind of indoor location or some kind of plan B. Um, I know, like, I've got a destination wedding coming up, and luckily that one's going to be in a cave, so it's going to take <laughs> some really bad weather for that one to, to not happen. But um, in the event of me traveling a long ways and there being some kind of, uh, you know, bad weather, I would still try to have some kind of indoor location in mm-hmm. mind. 
Um, obviously, I'm keeping an eye on the weather forecast long ahead of time, you know, as soon as I can, you know, a week ahead of time. And if it's starting to look like there's a chance for some really bad weather, I know it becomes even more important that I better have that plan B ready. So, um, so typically you're going to have at least a little bit of notice that you're going to need that plan B. And, uh, in that event, if you're traveling, you're just going to have to, you know, do the best you can online, maybe ask a local photographer in that area saying, Hey, I'm going to be doing a shoot in your area. Do you have any ideas for an indoor location? And typically if they're not jerks, they'll give you some kind of input back. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully you can change, um, times too, if necessary with the person, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, in Florida it rains like for 20 minutes and then it's done. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, just trying to remain flexible. That helps a ton. Okay. And and don't let yourself get stressed out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. So the next question is from Frank Gallagher. He was with us in Iceland. He says, um, how about the trade-offs on travel and trying to get by with just a 24 to 120 F4 uh, versus trying to pack the entire Trinity? I think he means 24 to 105. And uh, and versus trying to pack three lenses to cover as many different focal lengths as you can. So I've stopped traveling with the Trinity, which which typically is the 16 to 35, the 24 to 70, 70 to 200. I've stopped taking three lenses on a lot of my travel just because I hate the weight so much. And what I'm traveling with most of the time now is just a 16 to 35 and a 70 to 300. That 70 to 300. Uh, is not quite as popular as the 70 to 200. But what I like about it is that it's smaller, lighter, and I get an extra hundred millimeters uh, of reach with that lens. And what I find is that I do have that gap between 35 millimeters and 70 millimeters. But if there's something in those millimeters that, you know, that range that I'm missing that I really wish that I had, I'll just go into vertical orientation with the longer lens and do a panorama and I'll get it. So, and it's nice to only have those two lenses and not have to deal with packing three because that's a pretty big weight difference there. Um, I would never feel super confident traveling with just one lens, not only just because I would feel like my reach was limited, but because I, what if something happens to your one lens, you have no way to take (laughs) photos whatsoever. If you're, if you're traveling with two, at least like you, you know, you break your telephoto lens, at least you can take some wide angle ones, you know? So I guess that's where I'm coming from. Uh, how about you, Larissa, if you're traveling, um, do you prefer to take multiple lenses? What kind of gear do you like to travel with? I have never carried the Trinity lens with me. Um, I've always done a 28 to 300 and I believe it's a 11 to 16 and that's it. So I don't, I've that 70 to 200 is just way too heavy to travel with. So I just use the two of them. If I need something wide, I'll use the wider. And if I want it most of the time, 90% of the time, the 28 to 300 is on my camera. Yeah. I find that if you're packing really heavy gear when you're traveling, you find yourself just not taking as many photos because it's more of a hassle to take your gear with you. Uh, The heavier your bag is, the less photos you end up taking. And the more you're you're cursing at your bag because it's so darned heavy. So um, if you can just lighten up just a little bit, not so much that you have to go mirrorless. I'm not saying that, but (laughs) but just, um, you know, cutting down the number of lenses. Maybe you don't need to take 
every single lens you own. Maybe you just need to take your two favorites and that will get you by. I will say if I if I was forced to bring just one lens with me traveling, it would be 24 to 105, me personally. Yep, absolutely. And that is a great lens. Um, it's a great focal range anyways. It's, it's kind of falling out of popularity because it's mm-hmm. not quite as sharp as the other L, mm-hmm. L lenses out there. But they are getting ready to release a brand new version of it. The, the version two of it is supposed to be coming out in a couple months. So that lens is going to be an amazing travel lens, but I would still not feel confident to have that be my only lens. I would want some kind of backup. You know, if I, if I was traveling with just two lenses, like a 16 to 35 and a 24 to 105, I would feel much better about that. But traveling with just a 24 to 105, it would scare me because I drop things all the time. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. <laughs> so Bob Jacobs asks, Uh, What about Lightroom batch processing? I don't think I've heard you guys talk too much about it yet. It kind of gets grazed by when Nick talks about why Jim Harmer is wrong about auto (laughs) white balance, which he is wrong. Um, (laughs) But I can't remember you guys ever going into depth about batch processing in Lightroom. So do either of you do a lot of batch processing in Lightroom? I do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, talk talk about the the use case for doing that. What, what kind of shoots are you doing that for, and what's your workflow for it? So let me make sure I'm clear on what batch processing. What he's talking about batch processing. That's where you have like you select multiple images and you say auto sync, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Exactly. And then you adjust all of the images. So the way that that it works best is if you're shooting in Kelvin. So that way your auto white balance isn't jumping all over the place, and if your exposure stays consistent for a batch of photos. So even if you change your exposure, you would only choose those photos that are exposed the same. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you select them all and then you click on that um, auto sync. Is that what it's called? Yeah. it's, It's the yeah, it's the little sync. There's a button on the bottom right in Lightroom that says sync. Mm-hmm. And w- you select your first image and then you mm-hmm. select the next 30 or however many images that you want to process the same. And mm-hmm. you select them all, you hit sync, and then it, it brings up this dialogue mm-hmm. saying, okay, well, what, what settings do you want to sync? And then mm-hmm. you can select everything or you can unselect things like crop or, you know, local adjustments, stuff like that. And then you can sync all of those same settings across. And more so than in white balance, your white balance, you know, it's nice if you get it right in camera, but if you get that first white balance, right. um, And then you sync all of those same settings across. If you, Mm -hmm. if you reprocess that first one and change the white balance slightly, it's going to apply that same white balance to all the images. So assuming Mm -hmm. it's the same shooting situation, that's going to work. Okay. But where Mm -hmm. I really find myself getting upset with myself all the time (laughs) is when I'm not consistent with my exposure, because Mm -hmm. it, for example, if I'm kind of overexposing the first ones and getting and getting it a little brighter than I want, uh, and I turn down the exposure of that for those first couple, and then I sync that across all the other ones, then all the ones that I got right are now going to be a little bit underexposed. And mm-hmm. so I find myself going through and adjusting my exposure all the time when I sync my settings. And um, a person that's using some kind of automatic mode, it's going to be even worse for them because it's going to be just slightly brighter, slightly darker, and you're going to be adjusting the exposure of every single one. So this mm-hmm. is a great 
this is a great argument for shooting in manual as well. Yes, definitely. But I think also if you have a certain style, if you have a preset that you're using mm-hmm. and you can just select them all and then you have the same preset and then you can go through and just correct the exposure for yep. the ones that are over or underexposed, it's still going to save you a ton of time. And that's if you're giving the client all of the images, it's going to save you, you know, so much time than doing them one by one. Right. Yeah, right? exactly. The, where this really comes into play is when you start shooting weddings. You know, a typical wedding, I'm delivering 500 photos. And if I had to edit every single one separately, individually, oh, that would be a nightmare. So, you know, the the sync option in Lightroom is a huge, huge uh, time saver for me. I can select, you know, all the outdoor portraits and I'll edit that first one, sync those settings across. And then let's say I want to go back and do a couple black and whites. I'll edit one black and white. You know, get it the way I'm looking, uh, the way I want it to look, and then I'll select a few others uh, mingled in there and then sync those across and then boom, all of those are done. And I can edit, you know, a series of 40 or 50 photos um, in a few minutes rather than, you know, an hour. And it's really nice that way. Exactly. Okay, so the next question is from Jack. He asks, if you're using auto white balance when you gel your flash, will the camera auto white balance and try to take out the gelled light and make it white? Or is it going to um, adjust for the ambient light rather than the flash? So one of you guys want to tackle this one? I I can only I have now I kind of want to go and and test it out. I've never tested it out because I I just think that auto white balance is going to try to guess no matter what and when it's guessing it's going to be off a lot of the time so i don't i don't know that you know i don't know i guess is the answer i don't think the camera knows that the gel is on there because the gel unless i know like the d800 not the d800 the um nikon flash it can tell when you've got one of the gels that come with the nikon on there Mm -hmm. because of the um connectors Right. So I would assume with those it would, but if you're just using, let's say, a young no flash or something like that, I would assume it would go with the ambient light. Right. I, the, yeah, exactly. I feel yeah. like I feel like it would still, no matter what gel you're using, what flash that it would still try to to get it as close to to auto white balance or I mean, as close to white balanced as possible. So I I feel like the the camera is always going to auto white balance for the ambient light. I'm pretty sure that that's the case because until it takes the photo, it has no idea what, you know, what the color temperature of your flash is going to be. So it's, it's basing its white balance based off of the ambient light that it sees before it takes the picture when it's taking its exposure reading. So I I want to say, and I could be wrong, (laughs) but I want to say that it's based off the ambient light. So for example, let's say that you're in a wedding venue because Mm -hmm. Nick shoots tons of weddings and he can't think of anything else this time of year you're in a wedding venue with lots of tungsten light and you have it set in auto white balance and then you have some off-camera flash going somewhere it's going to set your white balance to tungsten or something close to that based off what it's seen before it takes the photo then when it you hit your subject with a bunch of uh, normal flash it's going to be very blue by comparison mm-hmm. so your You're right. your white balance mm. is going to be all messed up so that tells me that yeah even if you throw a gel on that it's going to be using the ambient light to dictate its white balance and so i use gelled flash pretty often and mm-hmm. i i the most common way that i use it is to kind of throw the ambient light into a particular shade of purple or whatever i'm trying for and so 
uh, I will I will set my white balance to say a cloudy or daylight, and then I will use the little white balance shifter uh, grid thing. I I'm pretty sure that's the technical term. The white balance shifter. <laughs> thing <laughs> and <laughs> and i will i will compensate for whatever gels that i have on so like for example if i'm trying to throw the ambient light to kind of more of a magenta around sunset kind of thing i will put a green gel on my flash and then i will uh then i will uh balance that out by adding a whole bunch of magenta with my tint slider on my white balance shifter thingamajiggy <laughs> this is going to be the most technical part of the podcast ever and so in doing that the the light hitting the subject is neutral but the ambient light around the subject is going to go very magenta and so that's how i deal with um using flash is i i do it manually well i okay. have a question I, oh wait. <laughs> yes. I had to google search Okay. So on the Nikon, the SB900 and the 910, there is a chip. And I found a Google that said the chip is supposed to provide communication with camera through the flash unit in order to properly set white balance when color correction gels are used. So you can in shooters, I guess, don't have that. That's but crazy. But shooters do. That is Man. some futuristic stuff right, right? there. Right? So, so I have a question for Jack, though. So okay. my question to Jack would be, if you're putting a gel on your flash, it's because you want to control the color temperature and you want mm -hmm. to, to manipulate the color temperature. So then why are you then going to have the camera be an auto white balance? That's true. I think he's just trying to throw us a curveball. I think you should try it. <laughs> well, yeah. I say try it. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to try it. <laughs> if, if you're using off-camera flash, you're already a control mm -hmm. freak. Right. So you might as well can take control of your white balance, you know, leave those auto white balance days behind you. Those are dark times uh, and then start manually controlling your white balance. And you're always going to get better results and more consistent results, because when you show the back of your camera, the white balance is going to be the same every time rather than auto white balance, which, in my opinion, always ends up to blue. I don't know if you guys mm -hmm. feel that way, but I think it, I think it's based on your camera model, because when I shot Canon, that was that way. And now that I'm Nikon, I found it to be the opposite, oh, but it might just be the body. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nikon's <Yeah>. better. <laughs> well, well oh, <laughs> different. <laughs> I think I'll try it with auto white balance. Yeah, this will this will make for a good test. You know, and it's so funny that this got us think it got me thinking because you go into autopilot after you've been doing it for so long, and then when somebody mm -hmm. you know asks something like that, it's like it really keeps you on your toes. I'm kind of glad that that question was asked. Very true. Well, we've got a lot to talk about today, but before we move on, I want to talk a little bit about Squarespace. I've been using Squarespace for my personal website for quite a while now. What I love about it is that it's really easy to update. It's a very simple interface and it's really easy to get looks that I really like. Uh, I've been using the commerce section, selling uh, photos and videos and stuff like that through my website, as well as uh, workshops. And it's amazing how easy it is to work. If Nick can do it, you can do it too, because I, I'm notoriously bad at, at building websites and stuff like that. And before Squarespace, I, I really, really struggled with my website, especially for photography. So if you go over to squarespace.com, enter the offer code improve, you're going to get 10% off your first purchase. And it's really, really worth it. They have beautiful templates. Their online store is really simple and easy to use, and their templates are actually award-winning for how customizable they are. So 
Make sure you go over there, check that out, and make sure to enter the offer code IMPROVE at checkout, and you're going to get 10% off your first purchase. This episode is also brought to you by The Great Courses. Something tells me that you're into photography. Are you looking to develop your professional photography skills even more? If so, now you have everything you need to begin or perfect your craft in the palm of your hand with photography courses and lectures from The Great Courses Plus. Uh, You can go and learn from professional photographer and regular contributor to National Geographic, Joel Sartor, and he teaches in-depth and highly interactive tutorials on how to make better photographs. Instant on-demand streaming of photography lessons. It's not just a platform where you you download audio podcasts anymore. That's how I I was introduced to it a long time ago when I worked at the golf course that I used to work at. I used to listen to these all the time. I used to listen to all kinds of like history of Rome and history of Egypt and and learn about things that were interesting to me. And what was cool about that is that I was listening to some of the most famous professors in the world talk about that. I listened to a course from Neil deGrasse Tyson that was excellent about the cosmos and and learning about black holes and all kinds of stuff. So anything that you're interested in, you can find over the Great Courses Plus. Uh, It's really cool because they have so much interactive material over there now, uh, videos, It's just a really, really excellent way to learn. They have over 7,000 topics now. Everything from history, science, professional development, health and fitness, travel, food, wine, hobby, leisure, music, fine arts, literature, language, philosophy, and mathematics. Anything you can imagine, there is excellent material over there to learn. So what you need to do is you need to go over to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash improve and sign up today and get your first month for free. So make sure you go over to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash improve and sign up today. And it's totally going to be worth it. I really, really love the great courses. Okay. So in this segment, we want to kind of go off on tangents for five minutes. So Sandy, what do you have for us this week? Um, so I learned a really big lesson this week um, that I will not soon forget. Um, first, I know, uh, Nick, you said that you use gels a lot. Larissa, do you use gels at all? No, I do not. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I apologize if, if anybody's eyes start glazing over and I'm going to try to give a little <laughs> bit of a backstory. So I was asked by my, I work at a um, furniture store as their product photographer. Mm-hmm. So usually it's just in studio and I don't really have to worry about a lot of um, conflicting color temperatures. Um, but they said, hey, will you go and shoot some images on the floor of so that you can see how large the store is? And I said, sure, absolutely. So I went right out there and I set up my tripod and I went into my normal routine, which would be to take a baseline image and then use a gray card to um, get my white balance correct and then if there's any dark areas I would go around um, with a gelled flash and fill in the dark areas to make it look brighter and more appealing well in a furniture store you have lamps and overhead lights and lights that are shining Mm, on the furniture and I'm not even kidding I had every color temperature like (laughs) Everywhere. <laughs> oh, that's a nightmare. <laughs> it was, it, I didn't realize how big of a nightmare it was going to be until, um, first of all, I, so I gelled my flash and I went and I shot the first area and it was fine. And then I shot the second area and then it was um, either like super green or um, violet, right? So my tint uh-huh. was off. Um, and so then I tried to mess around with some gels and it, and it just ended up like everything that I did ended up making it worse and worse. And I can't fix it in post-processing because if I take that color channel and try to bring it down, it's going to change the color overall and it's going to change the color of the product of the furniture. Yeah. 
on the floor. So um, what I determined that I'm going to have to do is reshoot it and try to get as as much of the lamps at least to match the overhead lights as possible Mm -hmm. just because so they're not throwing out a bunch of, you know, um, fluorescent lights that are probably a greenish tint. Yeah. I think that's the thing that's messing with me the most. I'm just curious if you'd like Nick, when you're doing real estate photography, if you've run into this problem before. Yes. Obviously not. (laughs) Absolutely. I have. And it is, it's awful when you run into it. And sometimes like when you're doing real estate, it's as simple as like they have, you know, the, the led light bulbs in one part of the house and then they have regular incandescent in the other and the light bulbs themselves don't match. And with your eyes, you don't really notice that stuff. But when you go to take a photo, you really do. In your situation, one of the things that I would recommend is maybe to go with one type of lighting or the other and then compensate with flash somehow. Like, I don't know if it would be possible to just turn all the lamps off and then mimic the lamp light or to turn just the lamps on, turn off the overhead and then mimic the overhead with flash. And in doing that, you would clean up some of the light or you could take one since you're working on a tripod you could take one shot where um, it's just the lamps take another shot where it's just the overhead and then take another shot where you're filling in with your your gelled flash and then in each frame you could compensate and try to make the the uh, color temperature match in each one I think that's exactly what I'm going to do the mm-hmm. second time around. But the lamps themselves all have different bulbs. Oh, so I'm, and they, yeah, so I'm going to have to go and go around the whole store, basically, and try to find the same bulb, you know, kind mm-hmm. of bulb and then keep put change them all out for the lamps. How many, so how many the, lamps are you talking about? <laughs> at least 30. Oh, <laughs> so my lesson learned is to not rush into anything and don't say like, oh, I got this. It's no big deal at all, because there you have to survey your scene first and really think about it yes, absolutely. before you just dive into it. But lesson learned. And, you know, that's what I love about photography is that I'm always learning, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not the end of the world. I can do it again. <laughs> And, you know, that's that's something that the store should have to do. Like part of their photography budget is going to be putting the same kind of light bulb in all their lamps. And it's going to make for Can nice. Can you imagine? And you're going to have to pitch that to them. Be like, well, you know, it's nobody's going to understand this. <laughs> it's going to give you a nice uniform See? look across the store. And it's, that's really normal, important. Normal people don't understand what us photographers have to deal with. No kidding. No kidding. All right, Larissa, what do you have for us this week? Okay, so I was bad, Nick, and I went out and I bought an A6300, Sony A6300. So I um, will be taking on my travels this crop sensor camera. Um, So I opened the box. We were driving home and I opened the box in the car. And lo and behold, there is no lens cover for the um, lens that comes with the camera. And there is no camera body cap for the camera itself and there was no plug so you have to charge it in the camera the battery oh yes the only good thing is that it was a usb charger and my husband offered to you know let me plug it into the camera into the car because we have a usb charger in there but i said no no and then we're driving along and there's this beautiful sunset and i did post a picture on my facebook page that i took with my iphone 
because the camera would not format the card that I happen to have in my purse. So make sure you always have a spare card in your mm, purse That's yes. or your pocket or whatever. <laughs> you know, I know everybody doesn't carry a purse, but I had a, I had a point and shoot in my, in my purse and I pulled the card out of there and tried to format it, but the battery was too low. <sighs> so I ended up having to take the picture with my cell phone, <sighs> but um, my first shots with the camera were great. Uh, you know, they, well, you know, the ones I could take anyway, they were great. Um, but just the simple things that when you buy a higher end DSLR or something that normally come mm-hmm. in the box, yeah. that I was quite surprised when I'm in there, like pulling the stuff out of the box going, where's the ca- the camera body cap? What is going on here? You know, so just be careful when you buy, you know, not that it's a lower end camera, but it's not a pro camera. So just be careful when you buy those things. So now I've got to go and buy, you know, spare batteries because we all know what spare batteries are like when it comes to or the battery, you know, dying out on you when yeah. it comes to these mirrorless cameras. And I've got to buy a battery charger so that I can charge more than one battery at a time. Um, so and I have to buy, you know, lens covers for the camera because I personally do not normally put my camera in my bag if I'm traveling with the um, the lens on there. I will normally take it off and, you know, have the covers on there. Gotcha. So, so remind me what camera body you normally shoot with? A D800. Okay. And so I, the size is probably dramatically different. How did you, what did you oh think of, God. what did you think of the way it focused? Did you have enough opportunity to test out the focusing system? Um, I did because I had actually rented the camera before when we went to St. Martin and um, when the planes were landing over Maho Beach, I was actually using, um, when the KLM plane came in, the big one, I was using the 11 frames per second, you know, fast focusing and stuff and tracking on it. So it did a really good job that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't used it too much. I've got to practice some more. Um I did like it enough to buy it. So, you so know, that says something, I, yeah. Right? Yeah, because when I had rented the um, Olympus OMD EM2, I think it was, whatever it was, I didn't like it enough to buy it. And this one, I did like it enough to buy it. So, cool. and I kind of hemmed and hawed week after week, <laughs> hoping that Best Buy would have it in stock so I could go and get it if I wanted it. But they didn't, at least not the one by me. So I had to drive about an hour and a half to go get it. So, um, I th- oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, at least you can drive somewhere to buy a camera living out in the sticks. Like I'm, I'm probably like a 10 hour flight <laughs> or 10 hour drive <laughs> to any, guy. any camera store. What were you going to say? Also, um, well, two things, uh, Best Buy, the ones by me anyway, will price match to Amazon. Oh, and if nice. I would have known that sooner, I probably would have bought a lot more from them instead mm-hmm. of waiting for things to come um, and on Amazon. But what I was going to say about the camera itself, the mirrorless, um, the thing about the mirrorless that has stopped me from c- completely transitioning was the battery life. But doesn't the Sony A7R2 have a better battery life? Didn't they correct that issue? Uh, people, I nah. can't afford the A7R2. Yeah, oh, and okay. I'm just curious as far as mirrorless goes, if any of them have a good battery life. You know, they don't they, think they do. Right. The mm-hmm. Sony A7R2, everybody that I know that owns one they still complain mm-hmm. about the battery life the battery okay. and it's just it's just not where a dslr is yet but you know you buy a bunch <laughs> and you just I have to swap them out sorry <laughs> well i've got two coming so that's good so i'll have three cool. total but i mean i can definitely tell the difference in the weight um you know when i 
when I walked around our town with it and I did set it up for back button focus. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, <See>? nice. <laughs> um, I will say that switching to Nikon, the Nikon does have a better battery life than my Canon did. Really? For sure. Interesting. Uh, significantly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very, very interesting. So, <laughs> just different, not better, just different. <laughs> yeah. So, so my rant is going to be about my newest toy. I also went out and picked up a new toy. I got the DJ, DJI Phantom 4. And it is so much fun. Um, this is my first ever drone of any kind. And I was kind of nervous about what the learning curve was going to be on like learning to fly it without, you know, running it into trees and stuff. And it wasn't that hard to learn at all. Like on my first on my first day owning it, I ended up taking it to Palouse Falls and flying it over cliffs near a waterfall and stuff. And, you know, I my palms were sweaty, but it survived. And it, it's just been so much fun. I've been slowly incorporating it into like my portraits, my portrait shoots, like senior sessions. And I took it to a wedding and uh, I got a photo that I was pretty proud of where it's kind of like looking down at the couple during golden hour and their shadow is like a million miles long. And it's really, really cool. Um, that was great photo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so the, the DJI, for its uh, 4K video, it'll do 120 frames per second in full HD, which is better than my uh, is better than my GoPro even. And there's just something about slow mo aerial footage that is just so dramatic and epic and smooth. Um, I took my my son out and he was playing basketball yesterday, and I got some aerial shots of them just playing around shooting hoops and stuff and it's like some of the most cinematic footage ever and it totally makes me want to like start all these kind of video projects because the footage that comes out of it is just so smooth and nice the gimbal on on this particular drone is really really smooth i've been, really been impressed with how smooth the footage is even in wind i've taken it out in wind a couple times and the footage is smooth um, and one of the things that I really like that, it, you know, this is my first drone, so this is all new to me and it's all very exciting, <laughs> but being able to change, change my settings manually right from my phone. And so I'm able to bracket my shots. Um, I shot, I posted a photo of a local courthouse here in my hometown and it was during sunset. So, you know, the huge dynamic range problem with bright sky, dark foreground. And I was able to do a three shot bracket manually and use luminosity mass to blend in my sky and everything like I would on a normal photo. And it's pretty cool to get those aerial shots that are still, you know, HDR in nature. Um, and that was one of the questions I had going into it. It was, would the thing stay still long enough for me to do a bracketed shot? And the answer is yes. If you do a little bit of auto align and Photoshop, it, they line right up pretty well. Um, I have had some that didn't want to line up great, but most of the times they line up pretty well and you're able to blend in your sky and, and everything uh, pretty seamlessly. It's, uh, it's only a 12 megapixel uh, camera when you take stills, which is enough. Um, I've found that it is kind of noisy and low light. Like it's definitely not the image quality that you would expect from a DSLR. Um, it's probably about the same as a GoPro as far as uh, image quality goes. Um, not great in low light, but as long as you're doing something little bit earlier in the evening like golden hour time uh it's it's perfect for golden hour you can really get some 
excellent stills and excellent video um, a little bit early in the evening. As you get later in the evening, eh, start, the image quality starts to fall apart a little bit. But I've been having so much fun with it. And how long ago did you buy it? Um, I got it a, a week ago today. <laughs> and you are, you've already done brackets and HDR with it? <clears throat> yep. I'm, you, man, you are a nerd. <laughs> so I'm already... Yeah, I flew it over a cliff, took it to a wedding, took it to a senior shoot. Nice. Um, so do you trust anybody else to fly it oh, yet, or were you the one flying it up the wedding? Absolutely not. <laughs> but, you know, if anybody's going to wreck it, it's going to be me. Yeah. And I'm already flying it in sport mode. So uh, it has several different modes. <laughs> And one of them is sport mode. And in sport mode, it'll go almost 50 miles an hour. Like it is zippy. It is wow. seriously fast. And the footage is pretty much useless at that speed. But it's just so much fun to fly that you end up zipping around in sport mode all the time. It brings I out the little kid that in you. The gimb- is it called the gimbal yeah. that keeps it? Um, I heard that the gimbal on it is so good that you can pretty much be at full speed and turn it. And, and the camera doesn't swing. Yeah, it's hardly. not. Yeah, it's not bad at all. Like the gimbal, That's you can amazing. grab the co- the copter and like and just have it turned on, but grab it and move it around. And the gimbal just like stares at you perfectly level and flat. It's really, really impressive how good it is. That's amazing. It's, it's so much fun. So if you want to get re-inspired, you should totally look into getting a drone because it's, it's got me so inspired. I just want to go out and shoot with it every day. I've really had no desire to get a drone, but now I am kind of excited and I have one more question for you. Did you have it for 4th of July? Did you use it for fireworks? Uh, no. I, so where Aww. I went, I went to a big fireworks show um, up in Spokane, Washington and um, I knew that there's just going to be thousands and thousands of people where we were at so i mm. didn't really want to ruin everybody's show by flying it up there <laughs> and and then i got there and there was like four or five other identical drones all flying through the fireworks <laughs> and stuff and um, you know there's there's some people that are just really inconsiderate <laughs> and yeah. i feel like all of those people own drones I don't, <laughs> I don't know what it is but there's that's like the personality type that um, once they they go and buy a drone (laughs) sorry nick once you turn to the dark side then you'll have to say what it is about drones that makes you that way yeah exactly i'm sure it's only a matter of time (laughs) did you register your drone um i'm not at liberty to talk about that yet (laughs) so there's i i've been told and i don't know definitely don't take any legal advice from nick page this is i'm the last person (laughs) you should ever take legal advice from but i've been told that i have 30 days to get it registered and that's that sounds reasonable yeah Mm -hmm. that's kind of like a car like that's how long it takes that you have to register a car so i haven't got it done yet but i'm going to and is the registration expensive not that i know of i don't think it's very expensive but uh, from what I understand, to use it commercially, there's quite a few hoops to go through, and I'm, yes. you know, I'm not knowledgeable at all about. I'm just dipping my toes in for the first time, but I know that it, whatever hoops that there are to go through, I'm going to go through them. So, I'll keep you guys posted on how much of a pain it is to do it all, because I plan mm-hmm. on. So I guess it. you won't be returning it then. No, Nick is in love. <laughs> Even if it didn't have a camera on it, I would still keep it because it's so much fun to fly. I can't oh, wait to awesome. start chasing wildlife and stuff. <laughs> Do all I, just, I just know living in Las Vegas that with the airport right in the middle yeah. of the city that, yeah, anytime you need to do it commercially, it's, it's quite a big deal. Yeah. Um, you know, so I guess it depends on where you live too. Well, yeah. And I, because of where I live, I could probably fly it for the rest of my life and never get called mm-hmm. out on it. As long as I fly mm-hmm. it, flow, flew it here 
Um, but I, I definitely have bigger aspirations than keeping it in Podunkville. So, <laughs> oh, good. so I better jump through the hoops that they want me to jump through. <laughs> okay. So this week's doodads of the week, mine is probably fairly obvious. It's going to be the DJI four phantom four. Um, really so much fun. It's not cheap. It comes in, a, a, I paid 1600 for the package that comes with extra batteries and some extra doodads and stuff. Uh, I think you can find it as cheap as 1300 right now. It's not cheap, but man, if you're feeling like you're in a photographic rut, there is nothing like changing your perspective on the world to get you re-inspired. It's just so much fun, and it's really been inspirational for me. Well, how about There's you There's nothing better than getting you re-inspired than buying a bunch of expensive toys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Then you feel obligated to be inspired because you've got so much money into it. What do you Spending have this week, money. Sandy? Um, so um, we we sometimes use these little um, things. They're called um, impact mini slave flashes. They're they're really small. I think at the longest um, they're four inches, and you can hide these little things anywhere. They're about twenty bucks each, um, and they're exactly what it sounds like. They're just micro slaves, um, and so they're really good for if you're doing like real estate photography and you got to be fast. You can throw them behind something to illuminate a wall um, or or, you know, put it outside the window to illuminate it. And, um, and they're incredibly versatile and again, cheap. Um, and then we also, um, we gel them. You can get these gel swatches from Lee filters for $2 and it's this big, big book of all the different gels that you can get. And they're like the perfect size to put on these little mini flashes. Very cool. Very cool. Mm-hmm. And so the and we did a, um, a drink workshop, how to photograph um, drinks commercially. And we would put the little flash behind the cocktail and it would illuminate the what's in the glass just right. Dude, that's awesome. What right. Do you, what do you have, Larissa? OK, I've got um, the uh, last week when we were talking on the podcast, we were talking about batteries. So I have the battery holder that I use um, to store my batteries in. It is a AA, AAA fluorescent orange four cell battery case. And if you throw your batteries back into them or place your batteries back into them, I tend to normally just toss them in the bottom of my bag, but you can turn them so that, um, if the top of your battery is facing the bottom, there's a charged and an uncharged or needs to be charged symbol on there. So I think it comes in like a six pack and, um, I'll normally keep my batteries in there when I go out to shoot and I tend to forget to put them mm-hmm. back in there because I'm normally in a rush when I'm, you know, changing out flash batteries. That's cool. So it keeps them pretty organized. How much does that cost? Did you say? It was oh. 20. I think it was $23 for six of them. Yeah. Yeah. I use the exact same ones. I, well, mine aren't orange. Mine are like day glow, not day glow. They're like neon yellow. And I, I really like them. They, they keep the batteries nice and organized, but they're in small, you know, packs of four rather than a big, huge brick of them. So they're loose in your bag and they, they fit in your bag a little bit easier. Really like those. Very nice. So I also want to remind everybody that I have four spots available on the Ultimate Oregon Coast Workshop with Majid Batazadigan. Um, it's going to be an amazing tour spots are filling so if you're interested in that you can go over to improvephotography.com slash workshops or you can go to nickpagephotography.com and you'll see a link right there on the landing page thank you guys so much for tuning in and we will see you in another seven days bye-bye